All right, good morning. If you could open your Bibles, please, to John's Gospel, chapter 4. John's Gospel, chapter 4. Hoping to get through verse 42 today. Um, We'll see how that goes. There's a lot in here, and certainly don't want to um, rush through these things. If you remember, uh, Jesus... He heard that the um, that the Pharisees had had heard that the the, the Pharisee Jesus heard that the Pharisees had um, actually let me just read it. <laughs> Therefore, <laughs> when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus had made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. And we looked at this briefly uh, last week, but today we're going to spend a little more time on it because he had to go through Samaria because there was a woman there and actually an entire village that really needed to know the truth of Jesus Christ. They had been engaged in pagan idolatry, uh, and it had been going on for uh, a few hundred years, actually. And... The Lord knew in his heart that there was a group of people there. They were the castoffs. Nobody wanted anything to do with them, but Jesus was not afraid to go to Samaria. And if you remember, we looked at a map last week of how, if you were to look at the northern part of Israel, that's the Galilee region, and then in the center is Samaria, and then Judea in the south. And Jesus was in Judea, and he had to go up to Galilee. And what the Jews would often do is go off to the side into an area uh, on the east side of the Jordan called Perea, and they would bypass Samaria altogether. And they did that because they were bigoted, they were prejudiced, they were racist. <laughs> and But Jesus is unaffected by any of those things. He will go straight up through Samaria, unlike all the other Jews, because a person to him is a person whom he has died for, and that he would ultimately die for. And so nobody is off limits for him. And I think that's a good lesson for us. No one is off limits. God does not look on the outward appearance like you and I do sometimes. Hopefully less as we get older in the Lord. But we tend to look on the outward appearance. God looks on the inside. And so he knew there was people up there in Samaria that really were lost in their sin. And so Jesus goes, and it says he must needs, I like how the King James says it, he must needs go through Samaria. He had to, because he knew what was there. And you recall what happened, that he meets a woman at the well there, near Jacob's well in the town of Sychar. And then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you... And he asked, he says, give me a drink of water, because it was about noontime, and he had been traveling uh, to, uh, to that point, and so it was in the hottest part of the day, and there he is by the well, and he asked the lady to come out and give him something to drink, and, and she says, then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, asked a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And notice, we're just going to read through uh, through verse 26 here. Jesus answered and said unto her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well, and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? 
And Jesus answered and said unto her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you, speak, you spoke truly. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I who speak to you am he. If, you know, some people have said there's, there's no place in the Bible where Jesus said that he was God. There's one of them. Because <laughs> the Jews knew that the Messiah would be equal with God the Father, thus God himself. Right? And so this is one of those passages. I would encourage you to underline it. And there are many others, especially in the Gospel of John, um, that are there. But we, I named the message this morning the gift of God because when Jesus comes to this woman, she, he says to her, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew the gift of God, and Jesus in his dialogue with her, he is slowly unraveling to her who he is and he's slowly unraveling to her her need for salvation. And there is no other way given, you know, there's no other name given on, under heaven whereby we must be saved but by the name of Jesus Christ. And salvation through Christ is a gift, isn't it? It's the greatest gift that I've ever received. It's the greatest gift because it's not a temporary gift. Although it is temporary in the sense I have this gift right now on this earth while I'm here on this planet, and all of you too, for a roughly 70, 80, 90, maybe 100 years, if you're really drinking your juices and eating your vegetables. Even there, there's no guarantee. But it's an eternal gift. Remember that. There's a, there's a difference between something that is temporary, a temporary gift, and an eternal gift. And the eternal gift that Jesus gives us is salvation through faith in him, what he did on the cross, his blood on the cross. And a gift is not a gift if it is something that is earned. You know the difference between a gift and something that is earned, right? Something that is earned is called a wage. We all earn wages. When we go to work, we earn a wage. It's something that we do. We put in the number of hours. We, we get a certain amount every hour. Or maybe you get a salary, whatever it is. But we get a wage for something that we do. We work and then we receive. And the Bible says that there is a wage that we receive spiritually. In fact, it's one that's not a great, it's not a great um, passage but it's full of truth. 
It says, for the wages of sin is death. That's what we get when we sin. We get death. That's what I earn because that's what a wage gets me. I earn death based on sinning. But notice, the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. A big difference. The things that I earn. But salvation through Jesus is a gift. And a gift is something, as I said, is, that is given. And there are a couple of scriptures that came to mind. The first one is John 3.16, one that we know very well. For God so loved the world, the people in the world. He so loved the world, notice, that he gave his only begotten son. That's a gift. He gave him because that's the best thing that he could have given. I mean, think about what God could have given us. He said, you know, I could have given you the world. I've given you everything. You wouldn't have to work. You wouldn't, you know, you just kind of wake up and have breakfast and enjoy the sunshine and never work and just enjoy. But he gave us something even more important than something that is temporary. He gave us an eternal gift that he gave. God the Father gave a gift to you and I. A gift that the world needs to know. The world needs to receive that gift. And they can't earn it. We could never earn it. Has anybody earned it? Raise your hand if you got the guts. <laughs> to say you've earned salvation. No, we've, none of us have earned it. You know, it didn't say, you know, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's speaking of eternity, isn't it? Because he's speaking of perishing versus everlasting life. Perishing for eternity and living in, a, um, being in, in condemnation for eternity or living in everlasting life. There's only two containers for us. And I pray that all of us have chosen Christ because you'll never see death. You'll never see eternal damnation. Eternal damnation. Not just a moment of time. It's eternal. And yes, that is part of the teeth of the gospel that we must never leave out. Notice that Jesus didn't say in, that, in John chapter 3, 16, he, said, he didn't say, for God so loved the world that he put you to work to earn salvation. He didn't say that. He gave. You simply had to receive. I had to receive that truth. And Isaiah 9, verse 6 is another wonderful verse that we all know very well. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The son, all the way back 700 years in Isaiah before Jesus was even born, 700 years before his incarnation, the gift was already in the heart of God to give. And I'm so glad that I received that gift. And you know, I shunned that gift for many years. Did you shun that gift? People sharing with you, trying to engage you and get you to hear the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then you said, well, I'll put that off until I'm retired. I'll wait until I move to Florida and I'm in my golf cart. And, I, and then I'll give, a, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll give my heart to the Lord. No, you won't. We can say all those things. I'm going to wait until I earn all my money and my kids are all married and they've all gone to school. And then I'll give my heart to Christ. No, you won't. If you won't do it now, you'll never, or I hope you'll do it, but chances are, if you, if you won't give your heart to Christ and you have some excuse, there will always be excuses. But folks, we're talking eternity here, and, and the gift that God gives is eternal life, and that's what he gave to this woman. He gave her eternal life. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved. 
unmerited favor, through God's unmerited favor, a favor that we could not earn, hence the term grace is unmerited favor. You have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Notice, it is the gift of God. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast, because we would, wouldn't we? We would. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. There's a passage here. We're going to look at verse 15 through 21. Excuse me. Romans chapter 5. This is kind of a wordy passage, but Paul is speaking to the Romans and giving the the, the difference between um, what happened in Adam and what happened in Christ. And, and he's always juxtaposing those two as we go through these verses. Notice in verse 15, he says, But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offenses, man's offense many died, speaking of when Adam sinned in the garden, Adam and Eve, that offense through, through them many died, much more than the grace of God and the, gift of, and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. We are justified in Jesus Christ when we give our heart to him, when we trust in his blood on the cross. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as though, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Obviously, Paul is, remember, he's, he's um, comparing Adam and he's comparing Jesus For as by one, verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through the righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So it is a wonderful, wonderful gift that God has given to us. And salvation was free to us. It didn't cost us anything, but it cost Jesus everything. And do you know that he will bear the scars in his body for eternity for what he did on the cross? In fact, in Revelation chapter 5, John, seeing Jesus in his glorified state, he looked and he says, Behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. And he's speaking of Jesus because this one, this one, Jesus in his glorified state was, he he was, they could see that he had wounds in him. His wounds will remain for eternity as a reminder to us of the great price that was paid. God Almighty paid the price for you and me. I don't know about you, but that's the best insurance policy. I like to call Allstate and say, how much would you charge for that? Call State Farm and compare their quote. I got an insurance policy that is beyond anything you can possibly imagine. And folks, you and I have that insurance policy. 
In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, Peter said, Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. But notice this precious one, this, this one, this lamb. It says, But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. This Jesus is the one. And also in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, he's a living stone, indeed rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious. This is who it is that has saved us. And the salvation of a person, of one person, is of great value to the Lord. You know, sometimes I think I forget that. You know, the value of a soul, it's immeasurable. And so often I can get so comfortable knowing that I'm born again, knowing that I'm going to heaven. Sometimes I can get so lax in that and comfortable in that that I forget that there are other people around that are dying in their sin. And see, folks, you and I live in a time right now where Jesus said the harvest is white. There are so many people out there and they're starting to come out of the woodwork now. And I'm so glad because last year was, it took a toll in so many areas, so many ways, so many facets of, of things that people went through. And it is now that we ought to be vocal. It's now that we ought to be sharing the love of Jesus Christ with people because that love is a love they'll never, ever have to worry about leaving them. God loves people. He doesn't care the color of your skin. He doesn't care whether you're rich or poor. He doesn't care anything. There is nothing that he wouldn't do. In fact, he did everything to bring you to him. He couldn't have done anything more than give you his son. There's nothing more. I mean, what more could God do? I mean, if, if he was willing to die in our place, almighty God willing to die, what else is there that he would say, I, I wish I could give you something else? There's, there's nothing. There's nothing else he could give but the gift of himself. And let that jostle you a little bit today. Let that shake your trees a little bit because we need to be reminded of that because he loves people. He loves you. He loves you. Do you know you're loved by God? He loves you so much. In fact, he loves you so much, he wants you to share that love with others. And is it easy? No, it's not easy. It's never easy. We're going to talk about why it's not easy here shortly. But notice at the end of verse 10, he says that he, if, if you would have asked, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that said to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. This living water is synonymous to the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit indwelling the believer. Yes, we're, re, we're regenerate. There are those who are unregenerate, meaning they're not born again. But if you've received Christ, you are regenerate. And the Spirit of God is rejuvenating you. He's regenerating you inside, changing you from the inside out, not from the outside in. And I love this idea of living water because when you think of water, what does water do? Among many things, it cleanses, it purifies, it heals, it refreshes us. And it's absolutely necessary for life. Without water, nobody would live. It's absolutely necessary, isn't it? And the Spirit of God does all of that and much more. Without him, we would be hopeless. 
Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. And I've tried for many years to disprove that fact. And I haven't been able to. I can't, do of any, I can't do anything of spiritual significance, nothing eternal, nothing that really would last for eternity without him. In fact, everything, anything that I do that's going to last and be of any value is what he does through me and what he does through you. Everything else is going to go away. But this phrase, living water, occurs three times in the entire Bible. Here in verse 10, and then in verse 11, and also in John chapter 7, verse 38. You recall in John chapter 7 that Jesus says on the last day, that great day of the feast, and this feast that he's referring to is the Feast of Tabernacles, it says that Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spake concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This Feast of Tabernacles, as you recall, is a seven-day feast for the Jews. It commemorated God's faithfulness in getting the children of Israel out of Egypt, through the desert for 40 years, and then into the Promised Land. That journey of 40 years, and how God provided for them for their sustenance and their covering, they celebrate that on the, the day of, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And notice that it says the last great day of the feast. So this is the seventh day of the feast. Now before we go any further, you have to understand a ritual that the Jews would do during the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. A priest would take a golden pitcher and he would go from the Temple Mount down to the Gahon Spring, which is down in Zion, uh, just south of the Temple Mount, and what they would do is they would take that golden pitcher from the, from the temple and they would go down and they would go to the Gahon Spring and they'd fill it with water and walk back up to the, to, the, to the temple mount. And then they would pour that water over the altar in commemoration and thanksgiving for God giving them the water through the wilderness. In a desert, water every day for a couple million people. That's a pretty significant task, wouldn't you say? Is God up to it? Is he able? I don't know. Is he, is he able? Yes. yes, he is. The one who spoke the water out of the rock, you know, to come forth from the rock is the same one in, the, in Genesis 1.1 when he said, let, the, you know, let there be light. Let there be all things that he created on those six days of creation. He spoke them all into existence. So they would take that water, they would pour it out, and they would sing a song. And the song that they would sing would be out of Isaiah 12, verse 2, where it says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for Yah, the Lord, is my strength and song. He also has become my salvation. Here it is. Therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. From the wells of salvation. You will draw water from the wells of salvation. That's what they would sing. And you remember that Jesus' name literally means God's salvation, right? So Jesus is this well. He is the well of salvation. It all is in him. And it's no accident now that he's standing at this well with his woman in Samaria. He's seated there actually on the side of it. Needing sustenance, the Son of God, God Almighty, thirsty. 
You remember in the book of Exodus that they got out into the desert and they were complaining because they thought that Moses had brought them out into the desert to die. And they were complaining because they didn't have any water. And in Exodus 17, verse 5, it says, and, 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 the, and Moses cried out to the Lord, and so the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water will come out of it that the people may drink. And here is the miracle that God did. He gave them water. It was necessary for them. Without it, they would have perished in the wilderness. And Jesus now is saying to the same woman, I want to give you something that's not physical. The water in the well is fine, but I want, I want to give you something more, more than this. And we'll see that the woman wasn't quite on board with Jesus at, at, the, at the very beginning, but then she finally caught on that he was speaking of something spiritual rather than physical. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul speaking to the Corinthians, he says, and he says, and all drank that same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. That's what, it, that's what he was in the desert for them. He was their provision. He was their rock. He was their sustenance. He was that living water that was feeding them physically, and that was even temporary. But now he's giving the living water that is going to be everlasting. Can you see the difference between the physical, the temporary, versus the eternal? The eternal. So verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, and then we're back in our text now, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? So she's not quite getting it, is she yet? And, and who, who can blame her? She's never encountered God in the flesh. <laughs> I mean, how many people have encountered him physically? So she's naturally very puzzled. In 1697, this well of Jacob's well was measured, and it was about 105 feet deep in 1697, about seven and a half feet thick or in diameter, and it was made of solid stone. So Jacob and his his workers had to chip away stone down at least 105 feet, probably even more. And so Jesus and this woman are sitting there. And she says in verse 12, Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons? And the answer is, yeah. <laughs> yes, I am. He is greater. Jesus answered and said unto her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. And you know, everything in the world has temporal satisfaction, doesn't it? It does. It has the, every, you know, the, the glittery things. You know, we're all attracted to temporal things. But after a while, it fades, doesn't it? Have you bought that new house, that new car? Whatever it is, the material possession that you've saved up money for, only to find that it need, it's going to corrode, it's going to break down, it's going to need maintenance. And then after a while, the joy of it just kind of fades. You could have a, you could have a house overlooking a bluff on, on Lake Avenue, overlooking Lake Ontario, and it could be all windows and a grand piano in the middle. 
There's a, the reason I say that is because I know of a house. I, I drive by and I see it. And I'm like, wow, that's so cool. But anyway, but you could have something like that, you know. You could have something like that, but after a while, you're just like, eh, what's next? Right? That's the way we are. And Jesus is saying, you keep coming to this well, or you're going to thirst again. The desire that you have, the, the longing that you have in your heart, it was, it was never meant to be satisfied by worldly things. And, and not that they're bad. I mean, we, we enjoy cars, we enjoy a home, we enjoy nice things. There's nothing wrong with that. But we know in our heart of hearts that there's something more. And in fact, when I came to Christ, I knew there had to be much more. Because there comes a point in your life when you've kind of done most things. You've kind of been through, you've gone through around the block a few times. And you're like, is this, is, this, is this all there is? I mean, I just work really hard and then I have some momentary times of pleasure and enjoyment. And then I get sick. Then the doctor tells me and i got three months to live. <laughs> is that life? But everlasting life is just the opposite. What did Jesus say? He said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And boy, that's a stinging verse, isn't it? Where is my expectation? Where is my treasure? Is it on the things of the earth? Or is it in glory where moth and truly rust does not corrode? See, nobody can take that away from you, folks. Nobody can take that away from you. It is more sure than us sitting right here, right now. It is more real than anything we are experiencing right now. That is a fact. Because Jesus said so. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe what he said? Do you believe what he did? Do you believe what he accomplished on the cross? I pray that you do because you can bank everything on him. Please bank everything on him. Don't let anybody take anything away from you. There is nothing on this earth that I would not give up to be with him. You can take it all away. Take it all away, as long as I got you, God. And you know, he may challenge me one day with that. Because, you know, I can talk a big game. And we all can, can't we? We can, we, can, we, we can all have a big mouth, and then he starts taking stuff away, and then we're like, <laughs> Lord, just don't take the Jeep. <laughs> you know? And we, we get like that. We get like that, and he's like, oh, Rob, I got a gold Jeep for you. I mean, he really doesn't, because I'm sure I'm not going to need it. But notice in verse 14, But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never, ever thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Notice that's something that happens within, not something that happens from the outside. See, religion is all about changing the outside. Well, if I do this, if I do that, then maybe I can be right with God. If I help the old lady across the street, she'll give me a dollar, and, I, you know, and then I'll, I'll, I'll tithe that dollar, and I've done my good deed for the day. No, you could do that all your life. You could do all the good deeds and miss the one thing, Jesus Christ. It's him. 
When he indwells you, then and only then are you a Christian. And that's what the Bible says. If you don't have the Spirit of God in you, you are none of his. That's what Peter said. And so I need him. And even most of you, perhaps all of you, many of you are believers. I would encourage you, even though you have him in your heart, desire him even more. And draw upon him even more. Because if you're like me, I can get kind of lax in my relationship. And it's true in any relationship, if you're not working at it, you are digressing. There's no middle road. There's no neutral. You can't just put it in neutral. You'll always go back. Especially if you live in San Francisco. Because there's a lot of hills there. Right? You cannot go in neutral. You always have to be going forward. And so Jesus here in verse 14 is clearly showing the difference between the physical and the spiritual. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. She's still thinking in the physical, isn't she? She's thinking about, I don't want to have to come here every day to this well to get water. Nicodemus was like that too, remember in chapter 3? When Jesus said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And he goes, how can I do that? Can I crawl back into my mother's womb and be born again? And he said, no, you need to be born from above. I was born with an old nature, and that old nature is an enmity against God. I need a new nature, and that is the very Spirit of God who indwells us, changing us from the inside out. Do you want to be changed? Even as a Christian, even though you've been with him for 20, 30 years, do you still want to be changed, or are you on autopilot? Are you in neutral? Put the gear forward. Put it in first gear and then put it in second, and then third. Always stay forward. And Jesus said to her, go. Notice what he says here. He says, go and call your husband and come here first. And this is where things get really interesting because Jesus now shifts her attention from her physical need again to her spiritual need. See, her life was filled with with much sin. There was a lot of sin in her life. We know that because... She, um, she was married to five men. I mean, what happened? Was she, was she unfaithful? Was, you know, what, what happened? Or was he unfaithful? We don't really know the details. And the guy that she's currently with is not her husband either. So now she's living in sin. And Jesus, showing his omniscience, he shares that with her. And notice what she says. The woman answered and says, I have no husband. And he said, you have well said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you're now with, the guy with the long black hair, he's not your husband either. In that you spoke truly. There is a principle here that is very important for us not to miss. When we are sharing with people the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to make sure that we don't leave out the part where they have sinned and in need of a Savior. We can't leave out the sin issue. We can't live out the fact that we are sinners bound for hell. We can't leave that out. Don't leave eternal judgment out of the conversation. The devil doesn't want you to talk about it, and certainly your own flesh doesn't want to talk about it because it is not easy to tell somebody that they're a sinner, even though you can look at yourself in the mirror every day and say, "Mm, sinner, right? 
We must tell the truth. People will not think they need God if they believe that they are okay. And somehow, you know, they think somehow God will allow them to go to heaven based on some good deeds that they've done in their life. But the teeth of the gospel is the sin issue and the penalty of that sin, which is eternal judgment. So do not remove the teeth of the gospel. There's a gospel that's going out today. It says, God loves you. He loves you. He wants to bless you. He wants to prosper you. He wants to give you that nice car. And yes, I'm changing my voice here on purpose. He wants to give you that nice car. He wants to give you that house in North Carolina. In the hills, Asheville. He wants to give it to you, and he wants to give you much more. That, that big old fancy car, he wants to give that to you. And money, 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 money. <laughs> Have you heard that? <laughs> really? Is that what God wants to give me? And that's all they talk about. And then people come to the Lord. Oh, I want to be rich. I want to be happy and healthy and everything. And, and, and God wants you to be blessed. But he wants you to be holy. There's a big difference. He wants you holy. The gospel is good news because of the bad news, right? We have to tell people the bad news before we share with them the good news. And that is what Jesus is doing here with this Samaritan woman. She has to come to terms with her sin. That's why Jesus is saying, hey, why don't you bring your husband here? And he's drawing her out, isn't he? It's like he's throwing the worm out there on the hook and he's reeling her in. Oh, got her. Okay. All right. And she's still not quite getting it. Well, you knew that? You knew that I had five husbands and the guy I'm living with now is, you knew that? He's like, yeah, I know. And you notice Jesus didn't say, you are such a pathetic thing. How can any, no wonder you're out here by yourself. Nobody wants to be around you. In fact, I'm out of here. <laughs> you know, did Jesus say that? Or was he loving her and had compassion on her? See, that is the nature of God. And that's the kind of nature that I want. No matter how ugly something looks, can you still be loving and gracious and compassionate? Can you? Will you? Allow the Spirit of God? But she has to come to terms with her sin. That's very important. We have to have the bad news first before we're given the good news. Because the good news wouldn't be good news unless we knew about the bad news. The bad news puts the good news in perspective, doesn't it? And now the good news looks really good. It looks really good. When I was told the bad news, I remember the day when I was told, my friend of mine, I was sat in his Cadillac and he told me, he said, Rob, your life, he goes, you're bound for hell. And I said, thank you. And he said, no. He says, listen to me. He goes, there are things that I know are going on in your life, and let's look at them. And he opened the Bible, and he shared them with me. And he, and he, 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 go, he went to a couple places, and he says, read this. And I started reading it. And he goes, now read this. And then I started reading it, and I'm, I'm undergoing the greatest conviction I've ever experienced in my life. I had to be, God had to put a thumb on my sin and it made me I was convicted deeply and what did I do as a result of that I cried out to God for forgiveness and he forgave me but that is part of the gospel that we can't leave out we can do it lovingly and compassionate I mean you don't have to be nasty about it but Jesus here is telling her go grab your husband 
and come back. And he knew exactly what was going to happen. Levi gave him a great feast, Jesus, in his own house. And there was a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And their scribes and their Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And I qualify. I qualified, and so did you. Right, And that's the teeth. That's part of the teeth of the gospel. Don't ever remove the teeth. Don't give somebody a false gospel. Tell them the truth. And I think this is a good example of that because he doesn't just say, hey, come to Christ and everything will be fine. No, he, he, he addresses this issue in her life because this is a stumbling block. This is obvious. This is the elephant in the room for her. And Jesus is putting his finger on it. Why? Is it because he's mean? No, because he wants to draw her out. She has to understand that she has a nature that is at enmity, at hatred against God. Even though she may say, oh, I love God, but then everything that I do doesn't match up. That's most people, right? Do you know that? Most people say, I want to go to heaven. Oh, I'm going to heaven. I love God, but I still like to do these other things, and I don't want anybody to know about it. It doesn't work that way. The gospel is supposed to be an affront to the natural man. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. At least, it doesn't receive them as far as receiving them in the natural, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And when it's your time, and you know that there was a time when God spoke to you, and it was the time for you because I had been approached many times, but there was one moment in that Cadillac as I sat, and my friend read the scriptures to me and zapped me right between the eyes with the scripture. It was the teeth of the gospel that broke me. The part that nobody likes to talk about, but we can't not share that. So verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Notice how she's changing the subject? Go get your husband. (laughs) I don't have a husband. Oh, you've had five husbands, and the one you're with is not your husband either. I think you're a prophet. Let's talk about something else. (laughs) Quickly deflecting, which is very natural, right? Our fathers, notice she keeps on her deflection. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Now, Mount Gerizim, which is in Samaria, once belonged to the ten tribes of Israel. You remember, after the, kingdom, uh, after the kingdom split after Solomon's reign, the northern ten tribes and the southern two tribes, well, up here in Samaria, which is also called Israel, and then Judah, which was Judah and Benjamin, they, had, they actually built their own uh, replica or a, a temple in uh, Mount, on Mount Gerizim, and this is what she's referring to. She says, our father worshipped on this mountain. It wasn't there at the time that Jesus was there because around 108 B.C., a gentleman by the name of John Hyrcanus, he was a Hasmonean ruler, he destroyed that temple. And so now, 140 years goes by, and now Jesus and this woman are at the well, and she's saying, our fathers worshipped in this mountain, 
But you say that in Jerusalem is a place where one ought to worship. And yes, Jerusalem was and is the place where people ought to worship. And there's a a lot of scripture to, to back that up, and we won't spend a great deal of time here, but God says, the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place. And we know that ultimately that was in Jerusalem. And you can look at those two passages, and it speaks very clearly of of first it was Shiloh and then um, and then in Jerusalem, and the tabernacle did spend some time in the town of Nob, as we read in First Samuel. But ultimately, Jerusalem was the place where God had ordained for there to be worship, not somewhere else. In fact, that was one of the things that got the northern ten tribes in a lot of trouble. Remember with Jeroboam. He decided to break away from Judah and Benjamin and create his own centers of worship. One in Dan and then one in Bethel. And they set up golden calves. Golden calves to worship these demonic deities. It got them into a lot of trouble. So verse 21, so Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, Jesus says, for salvation is of the Jews. Salvation is of the Jews. You know, it's interesting that people worship a lot of things. There are a lot of churches across America today, and in the world for that matter, that have a Jesus of their own making. Not a biblical Jesus, but a Jesus of their own making. There are people right now in Rochester that are worshiping a Jesus that allows an unmarried heterosexual couple to continue living in their sin. They serve a Jesus where a, 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 um, a homosexual couple can continue to live in their sin and be married in the church. They serve a Jesus that is okay with abortion. They serve a Jesus that's okay with pornography. But is that the Jesus of the Bible? No. He hates all of those things. He hates them. And how dare the church come along and say it's okay? And yet there are many that do. Shame on them. Right? We don't have the right to intersperse what we think. We don't have the right to create a new Jesus. We can if we want. Yeah. False teachers. But we, we worship the Jesus of the Bible because that is the accurate, true Jesus. That's who he really is, right? And you know it because you worship him. We worship him together. And there's such a joy and a peace when we worship the true Jesus Christ. None of this other stuff where he's just like, ah, whatever, just have fun, kids. It's all love. All you need is love. Dun, 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 dun. You know, no. You need Jesus. That's all you need. (laughs) Jesus is all you need. But the hour is coming, he says, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Our worship is initiated by the Spirit of God within us. I don't even have it within myself to worship God, except the Spirit of God is doing it in me. Seriously. God has done everything, and the Spirit of God in me is initiating that worship. 
and I worship him, and I'm glad to worship him, and I love to worship him. Remember what it says in um, John chapter 15, speaking of the Spirit of God. Because we have to worship him in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. What does that mean? We have to worship him in spirit, meaning led by the Holy Spirit, not by any other spirit. Has anybody been in a worship service where there's another spirit at work? Yeah. People running, screaming and barking like dogs and flapping their arms like we, you know, eagles and, you know, and slithering on the floor between chairs and stuff like that. It happens. And it's happened. Is that the spirit of God working? I don't I don't believe it is. We're his masterpiece. He doesn't cause his children to act like animals. You don't see it in the, in the Bible anywhere. But notice what it says in John 15. But when the Helper comes, whom I send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, what is he going to do? He's going to testify of me, Jesus says. He's going to testify of me. So if we're in a worship service and someone else is being testified of, if we're giving more glory to the pastor, if we're giving more glory to the worship team or some fancy speaker, and again, there's nothing wrong with any of those things, but if we're giving glory to them instead of Jesus, that's a different Jesus. Because the Spirit of God has come and it says, He will testify of me. And what does he say in John chapter 16? However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you of things to come. And here it is. He will glorify me, Jesus says. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Our worship also must be in truth. We worship God according to the truth of who he is. And what we read in the word of God. Do our worship service do our worship services resemble what's in the book of Acts and what we see in the Bible? Or is it completely aberrant and very different from it? If it is, then I need to ask some questions and I need to make some changes, right? It has to be according to truth. The truth of the word of God and the truth of who he is. I worship him based on the truth of who he is. And how, I'm gonna, how am I going to know that unless I know the truth? Right? Is this the truth or is this just a, eh, it's a New York Times bestseller? No, it's the truth. It's the book of all books. The best. So the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. This Greek word uh, for Messiah is Messias, which is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Mashiach. And Christ is Christos. <laughs> Love that. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And we know this in John 14 when Jesus again is talking about the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all the things that I said to you. He will teach you all things. And the Father, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus, they are one. They are not three separate. They are one. Amen? So Jesus, verse 26, said to her, I, he said, I who speak to you am he. So she says, I know that when Messiah comes, he's going to show us all things. And Jesus blows her mind and says, 
I'm that one. Go ahead and look in the prophets. He could have opened, if he had the, he, he is the word of God embodied, he could have just said, remember back in Genesis 3 verse 15? Do you remember back, you know, in, in Genesis 49 verse 10, that the scepter wouldn't depart from Judah? I came from Judah. My lineage is, is in the Bible. I, came, I was born in Bethlehem, went to Nazareth, went down to Egypt, came back. It's all there, all the prophecies. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be thousands of amongst the Judah, yet out of thee, out of you, will come forth this one. It's all about me, Jesus would say. And he could have said to her, he plainly and clearly proclaims that he is God in the flesh. And truly, isn't this the reason for this gospel? The whole crux of this whole gospel is this, in one verse. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. And every one of the Jews knew that the Messiah would be equal with God. That is why in John chapter 10, verse 27, they were attempting to stone Jesus. Remember what he said to them. He said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, that they may never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. What is your security today in Christ? Is it, I hope so, or is it eternally secure? If Jesus says that nobody can snatch you out of his hand, I'd say that's pretty, you got every confidence of where you're at. And see, that's the confidence that God wants you to have. He doesn't want you walking around thinking, oh, I hope so, I just don't know if I've done enough good things. No, you believe on the Son, you believe on Christ, and then you will be saved, and you are eternally saved. And he doesn't take that back away from you. You may still mess up. But I would encourage you to get your heart right with him and continue working, continue letting him work out that salvation that he has already worked in you. Doesn't the Bible say, work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and then to do of his good pleasure. That's what I need to do. I need to continue to not just you know, sit in my pity party with my pillow. No, I need to get up and put my boots lift my bootstraps I need to get my heart right I need to get into the word I need to get into prayer I need to start studying the Bible again I need to start thinking about others instead of just me, me, me you know there's a secret there when you serve other people when you serve and do other things for other people you, don't, you stop thinking about yourself and what a blessed person you are when you stop thinking about you the most depressing time of my life is when I've been thinking about me Can you relate to that? The more I think about me, the more depressed I get. And God's like, well, why don't you just go serve somebody? Go do something. Go buy groceries for that woman who's shut in. Do something, and, and, and then you do it, and then you're like blessed. It's not about you. And you feel blessed as a result. You know it in your heart. And it's contagious, isn't it, when you do that, when you're other-centered, just like Jesus was. He was all other centered. But notice what it goes on. He says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch him out of my Father's hand. Notice what he says. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones to stone him. They knew exactly what he was saying. 
They knew that he was claiming equality with God. Otherwise, they would have taken up stones. They were going to stone him for blasphemy. But why didn't they look into the scriptures? Why didn't they look and find out, could this really be? What does the Bible say about who Jesus is? Who is this Messiah? Where is he going to be born? Where is he going to come from? Does he fit the check boxes? I mean, they could have done that. They could have walked around with their clipboard and said, well, he's got to, he's, he's got to be born here. He's got to go, you know, and they just go through all the prophecies. Yep, he went through. This, I think it is him. And behold, it is. There are many times in the Bible where Jesus made himself known. Has he revealed himself to you this morning? Even afresh, again. Don't be discouraged. Folks, we live in a very difficult time. We live in a difficult time in history, in our country. We live in a very difficult time. I want to encourage you to run after the Lord. I want to encourage you to draw near to him. Draw near to him. Even if you've been a Christian for many years, re-examine the heart. Let's all do that. Let's re-examine our hearts again. And let's also re-examine our heart about other people too. Because they need to be born again. Just like we needed to be born again. And don't take the teeth out of the gospel. Jesus didn't take the teeth out of the gospel. He confronted that, that woman in love. Do you know the difference? Are you able to do that? Can you ask God to give you that heart to be able to talk to somebody that those kind of, nobody likes, everyone likes to skirt around that stuff. Nobody likes to talk about it, but it must be talked about. Where are you going when you die? How many people enjoy that conversation? I want to get to the other part of the conversation. Jesus loves you. He died for your sins. He died, you know. That's the part I want to get to, but don't leave out the other part. That is the teeth of the gospel. That's what brings a man or a woman to their knees. That's what brought me to my knees, and it will bring others to their knees because if you're not sick, then you don't need the physician. But the Bible concludes all under the same thing, that we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. So we are all in this together, aren't we? (laughs) Think about it. We are all in this together on this big rock (laughs) that is revolving around the sun. (laughs) We can't get off yet. We're all in this together. And God's like, save as many as you can. Reach out to as many as you can. Because after all, isn't that the Great Commission? And we'll end with this today. What does it say in Mark 28? I'm sorry, Matthew 28. It's the very last couple of verses. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And here's the command for all of us. Go therefore and make disciples. Make disciples. A disciple is a believer. And when you disciple them, you're encouraging them closer and you're, you're, you're reading with them. You're studying the Bible together. You're making a disciple. 
Make disciples of all nations and then baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am, all, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, which we are at the end of the age. Does it even feel like the end of the age? It does. It feels like the end of the age. Some days I wake up and I'm like, Lord, I don't know how you can not come back today. But there are people decades ago that felt the same way. And we don't know the time or the hour, but until then, until then, let, it re, let the Lord revigorate you in your faith and let's get out there. And that's why on July 11th, that's why we're going to go out and we're going to do it systematically. Don't worry, there's, there's really no fear. If you've never done that kind of thing, don't fear because you can, we go two by two and maybe we'll pair you up with somebody who has done that or feels comfortable doing it. I remember... I took my daughter, and if she hears this, she'd probably be cringing. But I remember taking her with me, and for the first several houses, I'd say, hey, do you want to share at this next door? And she'd go, no, 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 you share. And so I would share. And then, and then she, we were walking from one house to the next, and she said, you know what, I think I can do it. And I'm like, I know you can do it. And so you know what, the very next house, she started opening her mouth. And they were more receptive to her than they would have been to me. I thought to myself, wow, i got to keep you around. <laughs> she lost her fear in sharing. And you can too. Don't fear. There's no need to fear. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we want to thank you, Lord, for this passage. And we thank you for the truth of your word. And we thank you, Lord, that you didn't just say, come to me without any conditions, Lord. Um, we do need to be aware of our sin. Otherwise, we don't need a physician if we're, if, we, if we're whole. But none of us are whole. So thank you for drawing us, God. And pray that you continue to do that. And we pray that, Lord, we would be your ambassadors now. Lord, that we would be those people, that light on a hill. Lord, that we would be those, those that would go out and share the truth and love to all those around us who are in so, such great need of salvation. Lord, how we pray that you'd prepare the hearts of all of us and everyone around this church for miles. Lord, we pray that you would prepare their hearts for July when we go out. Lord, that you would guide and direct us, that you would begin to, even right now, give them a heart, a desire to draw near to you, Lord, to really come to the end of themselves. Lord, would you prepare them so that when we knock on that door, God, and we want to hand a Bible to them if they don't have one, we want to share with them some information and ask them for prayer or, or be willing to pray for them, Lord, that their hearts would already be ready. Lord, your word says, you said, the field is white for harvest, but the laborers are few. Lord, help us to be those laborers. And thank you for the example that you gave us here in this passage this morning, that you went out of your way to breaking all kinds of social rules And Lord, reaching a people that were unreached. So we thank you for that. Please give us that heart. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 God bless you. Have a wonderful day.